1: Management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time.
2: Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods.
3: Welcome to One Hour at a Time. I hope you all are having a great week and that um, people have power and shelter and that Everybody's Recovering from Hurricane Sandy. Um, Today we're going to be talking um, about trauma and what happens when people have sex addiction. And um, we're gonna be highlighting intimate treason and healing the trauma for partners confronting sex addiction with our guests, Claudia Black and Kara Tripodi. And I'd like to introduce my guests. Um, Claudia probably needs no introduction, but I will anyway. Um, Claudia Black is, as we all know, is a renowned addiction and codependency expert who's been recognized for pioneering work with family systems and addictive disorders. Um, She's offered us many models of intervention and treatment related to family violence, addiction, relapse, anger, depression, and women's issues. Dr. Black has been the senior editorial advisor for Central Recovery Press since August 2009. She's the author of 13 books, most notable, It Will Never Happen to Me, Changing Course, and Deceived, Facing Sexual Betrayal, Lies in Secret, The Truth Begins With You, was her first title for Central Recovery Press, followed by Intimate Treason. Um, I'd also like to introduce Kara Tripodi, who is the executive director and owner of the Sexual Trauma and Recovery Incorporated, which is also known as STAR, in Wyn- Wynwood, Pennsylvania. And they specialize in sexual addiction, sexual co-addiction, Sexual anorexia and love relationship addiction. She has been treating both individuals and groups since um, for a long time. She's a natural national. I'm sorry, lecturer, workshop leader, and consultant in the areas of out of control sex and partners of intimate betrayal. Um, Mrs. Ms. Triprodi pioneered the first intensive program for partner of sex addicts for Pine Grove Behavioral Health Care in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. She is the co-author of Intimate Treason, the newly released book for partners of sex addicts, and contributed to Mending the Shattered Heart, a guide for partners of sex addicts. Mr. Bodhi is, Tr- Tripoldi, I'm so sorry, is a board member of the Society of Advancement of Sexual Health, an organization dedicated to the field of traumatic sexual behavior and research. Thank you both for being with us today.
4: Thank you.
5: Thank you, Mary.
4: I think what's pretty clear is between Karen and I. I think we added up. We probably have
5: over 60 years
4: of experience right. working with addiction in general and sex addiction, of, and and the partners probably 45 to 50 years of experience there. So it was a fun collaboration. Yeah,
3: it sounds like it. Um, you know, can you explain to our audience what's the difference between someone having an affair? and somebody um, who has a sex addiction?
5: Mm-hmm. Well, um, someone who has an affair is, is generally, it's not necessarily something that they're going to do repetitively. The, the affair may have characteristics of addictive um, behavior in terms of the newness of the affair, et cetera, but usually in a relationship that's impacted by an affair, it represents either an, um, a dynamic that's been unaddressed in the relationship or unaddressed in, with the individual that has the affair. With somebody who has, um, who's in relationship to an, a sex addict, so somebody who could have had chronic infidelity, what that usually represents is somebody who has displayed, you know, chronic behaviors over time and that partner Um, it's really insignificant to whether that person would have cheated or not, meaning the person who cheats would have done it with or without that person. Um, It's usually something that's sort of uh, pre-conditioned or already well-established prior to them getting into a relationship. That doesn't mean situations in the relationship don't escalate behaviors, etc., but it's it's not usually about the relationship when somebody is having chronic affairs.
3: What is it usually about?
5: It's usually about um, a need, an insatiable need for, um, if we're talking about affairs, it's usually need for something new, a new person, a new sexual experience, a new love relationship. There's some kind of drive for constant um, uh praise or recognition by an affair partner. and and they, it doesn't really matter who that affair partner is. The, the person doing the behavior kind of needs to keep doing this over time. And it usually stems, in in, in my experience in r- running an outpatient practice, it usually stems often from um, neglectful environments or addictive environments growing up. Um, I think society certainly can play a role in that as well, um, but usually it's it's already going to happen for that person once they get into a long-term relationship that they have a need to cheat. They, they're unable to maintain an intimate connection with their primary partner. Their need for intimacy is, is kind of disorganized, so it gets spread out and um, diffused into many
3: relationships. So does the intimacy occur with the person that they're having the affair with? Uh,
5: What we might call false intimacy may occur, where there's all sort of the hallmarks of it feeling very close and connected, but really there's a lot of um, neurochemical changes that are going on with an affair that kind of make the uh, relationship well, first of all, it's very much based on illicit, very secretive. No one can know about it. And that seems to lead to um, more of what we call false intimacy, where they, they can't really express that, that good feeling in the rest of their lives. So it becomes sort of a secret compartment. Um, so it can have the, what feels like intimacy, but it's usually not what we call true intimacy because it's not an incorporated part of the self. It's sort of a split-off part of the person.
4: We often refer to that as the confusion between intensity and intimacy, Mm -hmm. and what's happening in uh, the clandestine relationship that's going on, if it's even a relationship, because many times this acting out is with strangers, many times um, it's a... Uh, A one-night affair. Sometimes it's not even as lengthy as a one-night affair. But whatever the acting out is, oftentimes they mistake the intensity of, as Kara said so well, that neurochemical change um, as a substitute for intimacy. Right. We often think of sex addiction truly as an intimacy disorder, the inability in which to be intimate um, in a healthy way with another person, but to truly to be intimate with yourself, to really know yourself, to attach value to what your needs
3: are, et cetera this is kind of a a strange question but i'm i'm trying to uh think about it as i ask you the question so if i'm having an affair there is certain um let's say i can't be intimate with myself i have maybe um, my maturity my emotional maturity level isn't you know isn't great. But what about the person who knowingly enters in an affair with me, knowing that I'm unavailable or knowing that I'm connected to someone else? Do they have the same, does the partner of the person having the affair, is it the same dynamic?
4: So what you're asking is the person who uh, connects with somebody who we're saying is a sex addict, do they have the same problems that a sex addict may have? right let's say let's let's say the person doing the sexual acting out is a male, and this is a woman, and she knows that that man is in fact married, um but she's willing nonetheless, so you're right. saying, does she have some of the same issues
3: right
5: and i I would say inherently there's a problem in the sense that she's attracted to somebody who's unavailable, they're married, and so having worked with women like that, you know that's Sometimes a lot of the very, you know, basis of kind of the intervention I will take when we talk about the relationship is that, you know, well, the, the bottom line here is this person is unavailable, and they'll say, oh, well, the hope, the wish is that we might get together, or they may say, oh, no, I'm just into it for sex, but then what will happen is that usually some, one or, two, one or the other will, needs will shift in the relationship, and then it becomes just like any other kind of relationship where there's inherent unavailability.
4: And I think you also get a similarity from the standpoint that they may um, be getting some gain out of the secretiveness of it, the level of intensity in terms of um, it being a secretive type of a relationship. But I also think that this is a person um, who, you know, operates from the flip side of that. Such a low self esteem that they're willing to be involved with anybody, even when they know that there very likely isn't going to be a future to this. They have very impoverished expectations. Right. And so it can, it can, it's not always the same dynamic going
5: on. And that's really a theme that, Claudia, when you say that we found with partners that they're, you know, they have often been attached to somebody who they've come to learn is is an addict, and in that relationship, they had to look at where they had sort of impoverished expectations. So there's there's there actually are similarities in that regard. Um, wouldn't you say, Claudia?
4: Absolutely. Yeah. I also think that, um, well, I think that's really chronic with the partners that we work with. Right. That we see um, many, some partners are very aware of what it is that Some partners are very aware that a lot of the behavior is going on. Others, and then it varies after that. Some are somewhat aware, and every once in a while you get somebody who seems to be extremely surprised. But they're usually somewhere in the middle of that. And when they have some level of awareness, um, you often, um, you know, get the rationalizing, in essence, the denying, and the minimizing, which may have more to do with that lack of expectation, that very low self-esteem. I always say that when the fear of losing yourself becomes greater than the fear of abandonment. And for many of these men or women, they have a strong areas fears of abandonment and of rejection. And when that has occurred, typically that started even before they were in this relationship. And as with the sex addict, so much of what we see with the partner uh, preceded their being in a relationship with this person. And a lot of what they learned in their own childhood, oftentimes as a defense, in, that, in essence, enables. To be in a relationship with any kind of addict. You know, if I, as a child, learn how to overlook what it is that's going on, if I, as a child, learn that it's not okay to set limits and say no, if I, as a child, learn to avoid conflict, then those are things that I take with me into a relationship, and that's what I mean by they can enable anybody in an addiction, and in this case, sex addiction.
3: What is the role that trauma plays in people that have sex addictions? Is it a a high rate like it is with folks that have alcoholism and drug abuse?
4: Yes, we very much believe so. I think, one, they tend to come from histories that have chronic stress, chronic trauma. In the trauma field, we call those oftentimes small T's, but small T's means developmentally. These are people who live with inconsistency. They live with unpredictability. They live with impairment in that family and the consequence of that is is traumatic to them and their development. and we see that with the partners as much as we see that with the addicted person. And then the setup for that is when they get into an addictive relationship, they are even that much more apt to not be able to respond in a healthy way and have a more uh, traditional trauma responses. Mm-hmm. We see extreme hypervigilance, we see extreme emotional reactivity. and really, when you're in a relationship, And there's betrayal when you have the sexual deception. I think that most partners are going to be reactive. I think that we'd want them to be reactive, and that would be a more normal response. Um, And yet, with so many partners, we get much more of a severe emotional reactivity. Um, And a lot of our early work with them is just helping to stabilize them in the beginning.
3: And we'll be right back. We have to take a short break. And we'll be right back um, after this commercial. If you have any questions for Claudia or Kara, please give us a call. the business channel
0: a fresh look at today's health voice america health and wellness
3: Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our esteemed guests today are Claudia Black and Kara Tripodi. Um, I hope I'm saying that right, Kara. Just jump in there if I'm not. No, uh, it's And we're talking about intimate treason um, and healing the trauma for partners confronting sex addiction. And I... I, we were at commercial. I was saying that a number of people that I've worked with will say, well, you know, um, she's, she has, she's had three or four affairs, but she's not an addict. That, you know, she's not, she's not online. I don't, you know, she's not stopping at the rest area to have sex on her way to work. I don't see this as an addiction. And, um, I'm wondering if, if there is a misconception about the label or do you think the label gets in the way of people, um, looking at their behavior for what it is?
4: I think the label for that certainly gets in the way for many people. One of the exercises that we do in intimate treason has to do with grappling with the language of sex addiction because so oftentimes if I say that somebody is sexually addicted, does that mean that they're perverted does that mean that they're a molester? To what degree are they a monster? Does that mean they have absolutely no control over his or her own behavior? So it's really important in our work with them is to take a look at the meaning behind that. We who work in the addictions field, we don't attach stigma to it because we really are able to recognize you know, that if I wanted to offer a definition, one of the definitions I'd offer is it refers to spending inordinate amounts of time in sexually related activity to the point that you neglect important social, occupational, recreational activities in favor of sexual behavior. I've also, you know, it's referred to as having a pathological and a trust relationship with a mood-altering experience. And like with any addiction, be it gambling addiction or substance abuse, there is a, a loss of control in terms of the inability to predict one's own behavior um, you intend to, when you go out tonight, to not hook up with somebody. And before you know it, you have hooked up with somebody. There is uh, an increase in the behavior. Um, it, things escalate in terms of uh, your own acting out. And then most significant, you continue the behavior in spite of adverse consequences. And we've seen people on a very public basis continue the behavior when the stakes are so high if there's any exposure um, to what it is that's going on. People have been willing to lose their jobs. More importantly, they've been willing to lose their families. Uh, they run the risk of losing relationships with their children. They certainly run the risk of uh, health. There's a lot of uh, disease possibilities here. There's more violence possibility as well. And yet, people continue. I mean, that's really to me the essence of what the addiction is.
6: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: And, Carrie, you were saying during the break time, you know, so oftentimes we hear somebody say, well, he's just having affairs. And even that kind of statement is just, you know, is is that okay as well? Right, right. And, but we would really encourage anybody um, out there, when you start to believe that this behavior is happening repetitively, to be open to looking at the fact that there is an addiction going on. And certainly... um, the behavior uh, is not acceptable to you, but that doesn't mean that somebody's perverted. It absolutely does not mean that somebody is a child molester. It doesn't mean that they don't have some control at regarding their sexual behavior. What we see is that people tend to act out in certain ways, that one person acts out possibly with pornography and never has a sexual, physical affair with somebody else. We see some people in their sexual acting out engage in exhibitionism and voyeurism and uh, very possibly um, not act out with anybody again in terms of physical touch. Then you see some people who only have relationships with prostitutes or strangers that they may meet, and then other people tend to have more of a what we call a relationship addiction, along with their sex addiction, and those are more long term affairs with somebody.
3: Are are each of those equally um, damaging to the partner? I mean, are there different layers of betrayal or levels of betrayal? Might, or,
5: no, I would say that um, betrayal is betrayal. When somebody feels lied to and deceived, it's just such a such a um, a hit to an individual on every level, that sense of security, that sense of trust, that this person I know, I really don't know. So even if we take something that's seemingly more benign, like, oh, my spouse looks at, at, at porn on the Internet, well, in these types of relationships, this has usually become such a piece where couples argue about for over long periods of time, in the sense like they, they'll confront They'll find out, they'll confront the person looking at the porn, and then, you know, months might go by, it'll happen again. So there's there's this kind of um, eroding of safety and security in the relationship um, that happens, even with the more benign behaviors. But really, the benign behaviors become so addictive if we're talking about an addict, so that's you know, what they started out doing initially, you know, spending two hours once a week on the computer can, you know, becomes, you know, four hours three times a week. And where they're stealing that time may not be obvious to their partner, but what the partner is going to notice are other, other ways that that person is unavailable to them or their family. And that's why, in, in Claudia, in my experience, this has been a very, very tough Um, problem to address because there's so much of the behavior that's gone on that's extremely covert, and what a partner experiences is some sort of unsettledness in the relationship that they can't always target, and that's why if it's porn or if it's chronic affairs or if it's anonymous sex, you know, a lot of these behaviors can be done, you know, away from the attention of that partner, unlike substances where you might see the immediate impact of somebody taking um, too much um, of a prescription drug or drinking too much, these are things you might be able to visually witness, so to speak. Um, with this problem, often by the time a partner confronts it, it's gotten so it's gotten pretty bad. Um, and that's why, whether it's porn or if it's affairs, now that doesn't mean, again, some people can do much more egregious behavior. You know, I find the phenomena here a lot of people who go on and look at porn, and then find themselves going to look at child porn, and the next thing you know, Homeland Security shows up at the at the front door of the family. And the reason I mention that is that you know that's a very that brings so many more consequences because now what's done in private and is is illegal has now become this societal mess that a partner has to deal with. Similarly, if somebody is having an affair in the workplace and the affair breaks up and the affair partner sues the family, you know, so there are variables that can be much more um, complicated and more damaging but the behaviors themselves, in and of themselves, I think are really traumatic to partners.
4: And I think it's why it's so important that part of what we work with very early on with partners is trusting their own perception. Right. And for them that unless they have proof, then they want to discount that that sense that they have that there's something wrong here and that if they're willing, in essence, to almost trust their gut, if they're willing to at least um, identify and label the unknown, the absences, the odd communication, and to really name that as a problem, the chances of exposing what's going on uh, is more likely to right. occur much more, much more quickly. It's very common, I don't know if this is your experience care, but my experience has been it's very common that by the time I'm working with the partner, she or he have been in the relationship at least 10, 15 years. Yes. It is not, and yet then the behavior has been going on most of those 10 or 15 years because, as Kara said earlier, the behavior usually preceded the relationship, Mm -hmm. which is really important information, by the way, for the partners to hear Mm -hmm. because partners so often think that, you know, if I was prettier, if I was taller, if I was more ample-breasted, if I was funnier, you know, they really think that it is about them right. um, needing to be sexier or more alluring in the bedroom. When in fact, as I said and said earlier, it usually even precedes this relationship. But whether or not it does precede this relationship, the reality it is not about them needing to do something different for themselves to be more enticing sexually.
3: What is the rate of a co-occurring addiction or um, depression or um, the sex addiction often accompanied by other addictions or other mental health problems?
5: I would say both. I would say that, you know, these are usually on some level very complex people who have you know, again, a lot of times why they're drawn to the behavior or they're drawn to this type of partner is that it helps to to regulate their mood. And so sometimes it can be something that um, when somebody confronts this problem, whether they're the one having the behaviors themselves or they're the ones in relationship to that person, they have to really confront that this has been a mask from, from some of their own, um, you know, issues, so to speak. Um, and so in that case, it can often be that there is, you know, depression for some people. There's bipolar. There's ADD. Um, other kinds of diagnoses, and often co-occurring other addictive behavior, other addictive patterns are usually present as well. At um, yes, so alcohol might be one. Go ahead, Claudia. You re- I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Go
4: ahead. We're doing a pretty good job of not jumping in on each other with this co-interview here. Um, And I was just going to reinforce that this is just as true for the partner as it is for the person who's doing the sexual acting out. And I think a couple of the more prevalent um, addictive behaviors that I've seen with partners has to do with eating disorders, um, spending debt issues, Um, Certainly, they could also have their own active sex addiction going on. That's not uncommon. Many times, they themselves are substance abusers, Um, and certainly depression and anxiety, Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes that's been an inherent part of their, their life, but because of the chronicity and with any addiction, usually by the time people get help, you've got some chronic loss issues going on that have been, and chronic is really important. For 5, to 15, 20 years, these men and women as partners have been dealing with the loss of intimacy in a healthy way. Even if they don't know what's going on, they're still having that experience. And that kind of chronic loss certainly supports a lot of
3: depress, depression diagnoses.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And we'll be right back after this commercial with more of our guests.
6: common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders that's westbridge.org family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders
1: in your family what is most important to you is it health relationships how about getting along better with your kids or your parents Maybe it has to do with losing pounds or gaining financially. Whatever the problems you face in your family, you'll want to tune in to Family First with your host, author, and speaker, Randy Rolfe. Since 1985, Randy has become the foremost expert on matters concerning the family, and she can help you. Family First airs live every Friday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health &
0: Wellness.
3: Welcome back, everyone. Our guests today are Claudia Black and Kara Tripoli, and we're talking about intimate treason, healing the trauma for partners confronting sex addiction. And Claudia, having you on the show, I have to say this: that addiction is a family disease, and um, and I'm I know from my experience in working with um, people that when there's a sex addiction involved, you, you two were talking earlier about how over it is. And so it's happening but nobody really knows it's happening. It's not like mom's falling down drunk when I get home from school or um dad is, you know, there's needles around because I know dad's shooting up. This is something that that kind of hits people um, I think at a very core, at, at a very, um, the core of their being that, you know, mom isn't the woman I thought she was, you know, she's asking, you know, she brought me up to, to do one thing and now she's living a totally different life, which you can see, you, you can see it. And I think you have time to adjust to it when when, it, when it's a, you know, when, it, when it's a behavioral type addiction that um, people are doing in front of you. But But this is not the type of behavior that Typically people are doing in front of you. So I was just wondering about the effect of all of this on families, whether the child is 4 or 54.
4: Well, I think, just like with any addiction, we're in denial if we think that it's only affecting the the partner and the addicted person themselves because it's affecting everybody else within that family system. But one of the things that and I know what you're saying about you know when something like substance abuse is so much more apparent and people can put their finger on at least the source of the, the difficulty in the family, but it may be surprising to the listeners, but so oftentimes kids suspect they know there's something very wrong in this family even very young kids and the older they are as they move through their adolescent age years and adult years they often will actually expect suspect that in fact it could be sexual and so it's not near when it when it gets exposed it's not near the surprise that i think people would expect it to be and certainly for the parents they are usually shocked to think that their kids actually have suspected and, in fact, may even know because kids see things that they often haven't been able to to express until the secret really begins to be acknowledged. So that's my first comment is that family members, particularly kids, now if we're talking about parents of, uh, you know, if we're talking about maybe 50-year-old parents of kids who are in their 20s and their 30s, Then they have not; um, they may be less suspecting, and I see them often struggle, and I see them want to normalize the behavior. Isn't that just something that all people do anyway? Unless, again, it has more illegal consequences to it.
5: Mm -hmm. Kara, what do you think? Well, you know, from the um, from the outpatient setting, what's interesting is our practice, um, the program here, has begun to treat a lot more adolescents or. children in their 20s, and so what's happening is we're getting a lot more of their parents that come as, you know, so rather than the person having a significant other, their significant other is their parent, and so I think that's really been quite uh, a reflection of the escalation of the Internet um, kind of um, intrusion in people's lives in the sense that if, if somebody is more addicted, um, has more of an addictive um personality with the internet. These are kids that were exposed, and there was very few um, regulations or limits put on them in the home. Or you have parents that couldn't regulate their kids' use, and they end up showing up here for treatment. Um, And a lot of these kids are spending a lot of time alone. They're not achieving, they're not having social relationships, you know, again, not just with porn, but with things like Facebook. They use that to Again, that would feed very much into kind of fantasy types of relationship. They think if they have relationships online, that substitutes for offline behavior. Um, so I see a lot more of, of you know, young adults or adolescents coming in struggling very much with this problem. The other end of it, as Claudia was saying, is I, I feel that at some point a lot of the, the sexual addictive behavior, you know, it escalates. And so if somebody is more of a flirter, for example, and, you know, they go to social events, kids start to pick up on dad or mom flirts with my coach or dad or mom flirts with my teacher. Or my friend. Um, also, you have kids that are the ones that intercept the problem. So they go onto the computer and they see dad's porn page or they intercept text messages from, from mom's boyfriend or girlfriend. And So sometimes that's where the the catalytic crisis event can occur, and then the family gets swooped into this whole problem or into this, and it becomes a bigger issue. Nonetheless, I still think it's very much a covert issue because even that can be episodic for a child. So it's very hard for them to make sense of this as, well, you know every time dad picks up a drink, that means dad has a problem. You know, you can eventually help educate a child, with this problem, I think it's harder because you're introducing the concept of, of sex and love relationships, sometimes developmentally, when kids aren't ready. And so it creates a lot more complexity in the family, I would say. And, again, as with any
4: addiction, even if it's not known by both of the adults what it is that's going on, these are kids who are living with tension in the family. Very much These so. are li- okay. kids living with parents who are in that tension Are communicating in really unhealthy ways are often emotionally reactive it's all very confusing these are uh, very often parents who may be feeling guilty about their own behaviors and then that influences how they parent these kids so you have some you can have some unhealthy parenting certainly going on but more so even unhealthy modeling of uh, emotional expression um, which which stunts the kids themselves in terms of emotionally connecting to people in their lives.
3: So how do people heal? How do people get that trust back after they've been betrayed, whether it's the partner or the family? Well,
4: one of the things that I've often said to a partner is, I certainly can't promise you your relationship, but if you're willing um, to take a look at yourself in this process, What I do believe I can promise you is your self-respect and your dignity. Mm -hmm. And so it means a willingness for those different family members to become engaged in not just understanding uh, sex addiction, but really in taking a look at uh, what we call in our book their part of the dance it first begins by uh, telling their story. And we think it's so important that their story be heard. And when uh, we talk about their story, what we mean is, is their experience in terms of uh, uh, their various suspicions, how they did or did not act on those suspicions, um, the attempts that they made to garner some control about whatever it was they were suspecting, what their various emotional reactions were, um, It's uh, being able to begin to have a vision for how their life can be different irrespective of the fact that they really can't control what their partner is going to do. Uh, We think it's, you know, everybody comes in with some strengths. I think at the point they come into us, um, as said earlier, they're very emotionally reactive. They may have their own active addictions going on, but we need to very quickly help them tap into uh, what those strengths are and where it is that they have utilized them, and how we're going to use those strengths really as a foundation. We're going to focus on issues. Uh, we're going to do some stabilizing, um, and the stabilizing has to do with how to get them to um, be able to not be triggered on a constant basis, um, not to go into that emotional reactivity that's so frequently there, not to have to become that super detective and be hyper vigilant to every nuance that is going on and to really how to organize their day in a way that they're taking uh, better care of themselves while they're ultimately going to get into some very deep work. Um, they're going to ultimately have to take a look at what that high tolerance for hurtful behavior is about. They're going to have to take a look at uh, what they're doing that's self-defeating for themselves. I and mean, part of what we know is even if this relationship doesn 't work they 're still going to take themselves in to the next relationship and they 're either going to take themselves in with uh, greater health or they 're going to take themselves in with the same self defeating behaviors they 've had in this relationship
3: and be at risk for finding a partner with similar um, intimacy issues
4: mm-hmm. very much it's very common that we see people who get into relationship issues with one addict after another. It may be a different addiction, but it's typically one addict after
3: another. Do folks usually come as, as couples, or does the partner usually come in looking for a way to cope or a way to get out of the relationship? How, it, what's typical?
5: I, I would say generally what has been typical is that people are coming in as a couple, but I think that's changing, and one of the things that I think that, you know, our book kind of, kind of reflects is that there's more um, awareness of the needs of a partner, and I think a lot more partners are educating themselves, and so they're learning that they have needs, that, you know, they need help uh, for how to deal with this issue. And sometimes that's happening before the the attic is where the Person that's perhaps having this problem, this may happen before they are even willing to get the help. And so a lot of times I have focused, you know, early intervention work with partners on helping them figure out what they kind of what I would call have a right to, sort of expectations of their partner in this process. So, you know, if they're coming in and they're saying to me, look, you know, he or she keeps acting out or he or she won't stop having, you know, a relationship with, you know, their affair partner and won't stop going to strip clubs, my, a lot of my focus is going to be very much on immediate interventions to help that person um, start to feel some confidence in that they have a right to not expect this behavior anymore. Um, a lot of times, though, there are partners that can't set those kinds of limits early on, so then there's you know, intervention in that case with a partner is working very much on helping them become ready for those kinds of steps and looking at what are some of the roadblocks that get in the way of that. And it often gets back to this fear of, you know, abandonment or they're not going to have the relationship or it means if I have a voice, I'm going to lose my partner. And so there's, um, you know, a lot of intervention that goes into those areas. But I think it you know it it really depends. There's a lot of addicts that come in that have you know have lost their relationship already, and the partner doesn't want to be um, into treatment, does not want to enter treatment in fact is already headed towards divorce so um, you know, but generally, if you get this problem early enough in 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 the fallout of the relationship, it really can prove very effective that couples really can heal from this. But that, you know, the healing part doesn't, I don't think, takes place for a good two years. There's just a lot of disorganized, just, you know, both parties are really working on their own um, kinds of needs in, in that year or two before they can really work on the relationship.
3: And we'll be right back after this commercial.
1: Get the latest information in health and wellness when you tune into On the Radio with Dr. Ray. Each week, you'll find out the latest and greatest from both traditional and holistic perspectives. Your host, Dr. Robert Ray, better known as Dr. 90210, is the best known and most sought after plastic surgeon in Beverly Hills. Dr. Ray, with his co-host, Natalie Day, will help you get the dream body you've always wanted through diet and exercise, not surgery and medicine. On the radio with Dr. Ray, airs live Thursdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time, on Voice America Variety.
0: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
3: and Kara Tripodi, and we're talking about Intimate Treason, Healing the Trauma for Partners Confronting Sex Addiction. Um, Before we went to break, we were talking about um, who got into treatment first, and I think, Claudia, you wanted to say something about that as well.
4: I just wanted to make the point that so oftentimes I see it is the spouse, the partner, who is willing to to move that, um, to call for help and to go in and to see somebody, and then in the process, and I really encourage that you can go out and ask for help. You don't have to wait for the addicted person to say, yes, I'm coming along with you, because very oftentimes they will not, but you need to reach out, ask for help, go for help, and I would really encourage you to let that person who's doing the acting out know that you're going, that this is a problem, and that you're going for help. Oftentimes they will follow. They've been trying to call your bluff when they realize that you're really going to follow through. They may very well follow, but what So often does occur, then is then we leave, we the partner leave the addicted person in some kind of a counseling treatment process and then we back away because we think, well, it's really their problem. And if they just stop, then I'm going to be okay. And what Kara and I are hoping that people understand is it isn't about them just stopping and that you and then the coupleship will be okay because at this point there's been far too much damage really to the coupleship and to one's self-esteem, that it won't just spontaneously heal itself, even if they stop the behavior. And that's really what intimate treason is about. It's really about you, the partner, and your healing process.
3: Earlier um, you mentioned the concept of uh, stabilization, when somebody comes in um, and they're in crisis. Could you uh, explain to us what you mean by that?
4: Well, Kara actually started to talk about that uh, a bit when she talked about, um, pretty early on, uh, many times we help people take a look at what kind of limits can they set to bring a a greater sense of safety into their immediate life. Are they prepared to uh, set certain kinds of non-negotiables? What do they need to do immediately for their own self-care? We really help to normalize uh, some of what their reactivity is about, helping them to recognize some of what they are doing are uh, trauma responses. We try and help them uh, calm, uh, uh, have a more calming presence to be able to think through and not just emotionally react to what it is they're doing. One of the things that we actually do fairly early on with people is ask them to write letters to themselves um, about saying goodbye to the relationship as it once was um, to facilitate them in their own grieving process but an equally important letter is writing a letter to themselves about how it is that they want to be treated So in the stabilization process it also goes back to what I was talking about earlier in terms of uh, trusting their own gut, um, being willing to acknowledge um, and to own, their suspicions, what it is that uh, uh, they were picking up on, even if they didn't see the behavior directly, um, to be willing to tolerate that fluctuation of uh, feelings that are going on, to listen to their body, um, to really get more grounded with themselves. Um, And with that, that then ultimately leads to them also then taking a look at those often addictive behaviors that that they're experiencing as well because they're not going to be able to further this recovery process if they have some of their own addictions going on.
3: What made you decide to collaborate to write Intimate Treason? Well, I don't
4: know. Do We may have different reasons. Um, <laughs> Uh, we both have been working in the field, so I'll speak for us both there. We both had been doing some writing. I had written a book called Deceived Facing Sexual Betrayal, Lies and Secrets, which really spoke to the partner to try and help her see what her or his recovery would be about. But I certainly felt the need... That we needed, I needed to go to a greater depth with that partner and to not just for them to understand what their recovery could be, but for them to be able to engage more specifically. And I knew of Kara's work. I knew that she was steeped in this on a daily basis. And, um, Kara, what led you to this?
5: Well, I just had always been very committed to trying to, um, get Um, to make real what I had learned from partners for so long and had very much wanted to write a book like Intimate Treason. And Claudia and I connected around this, and it just seemed like the right fit with her expertise um, as well as her history of writing lots of books that had to do with the addicted family. I felt that this would be a very good collaboration. And we come from opposite sides of the country, which is interesting. So we did all of this. I think we met, what, twice, Claudia? Maybe three times at the most. Three
4: times. Truly
6: really
5: at the so, most. in um, Philadelphia and I'm in Seattle. Right. <laughs> um, so it's, you know, I, I think, um, and I didn't get a chance to share this with Claudia, but we Previewed the book at this conference about a month ago or six weeks ago, and I remember walking into the bookstore and I saw the books there, and I thought, God, this took a long time. And and I remember, you know, and, and Claudio, you were much more the um, the taskmaster at times with things getting in the way on my end with my schedule. And I remember sitting there, and I had this moment of clarity that this book took a long time. Because I just had this this parallel process of, like, well, partner recovery takes a long time. And when you sit with a partner in that first phase, that takes a good year. So that grounding that Claudia is talking about, helping them, you know, sit with their, their truth, helping them claim their truth, helping them set limits. I mean, this is very, very deep, deep work. And if you're going to work with this population at all, you have to have the ability not just to sit with pain, but also recognize that this is often very acute traumatic responses partners are demonstrating. And it can also be a window into some other areas that they're struggling with in their past. So it's, it's, um, so I just felt that Claudia and I collaborating with this, we just could bring a depth To the experience for partners, and we wrote this so that it could be for for somebody who, you know, wasn't yet ready maybe to commit to treatment or, you know, maybe for the partner who had been in a relationship in the past that they could use this as sort of a way to further their healing around what happened in that relationship or relationships. And we don't want people to believe that they have to be in a coupleship to benefit from this. That's right.
4: Because as Kara said, there's many people who've had these relationships and don't yet quite understand what it is that's happened and are still uh, taking with them the pain and the trauma of what it is that has occurred. Right.
3: And I think think it's important for people to understand, too, that just because the relationship, you know, you've left a relationship, it doesn't mean that you've left the trauma behind Mm -hmm. and that, um, I, I also want to just say that I, I don't think every addiction counselor is equipped to treat sexual addiction either. So. Oh, for sure. Um, for and, sure. in fact, you know,
4: we have major uh, trainings. We have associations that do very extensive training in sex addiction, and just to know addiction in and of itself isn't doesn't qualify anybody to work with sex addiction, nor does being even just a marriage and family therapist. I mean, it does take some specialized training. And a part of the problem um, is that many people are experiencing sexual addiction. They go into a therapist who isn't trained in sexual addiction, sees it as an issue only of infidelity, and it doesn't get appropriately treated. And then the acting out occurs, and the trauma responses on the part of the partner will just continue for. Multiple years. I mean, it's not uncommon that people have been to multiple therapists, and the issue has not been identified as addiction. Right, and, and, yes.
5: and I just want to underscore. I've worked with many partners who've been really damaged by traditional couples therapy, not because the couples therapist wasn't knowledgeable about couples therapy, but because you cannot apply uh, regular couples work to this problem. You know, in my my belief is that in the beginning, addicts have absolutely 90% of the problem, and to put the onus on a partner is not only wrong, but is, is, is you know, what's the equivalent of malpractice. It's absolutely unethical for, for partners to be labeled as having equal responsibility, and it misguides the treatment, and it enables the addictive process, and so, you know, I, I personally often feel that they shouldn't even be in any kind of couples therapy in that first year or two. Um, some couples, if they have greater ego strengths, but a lot of couples don't do very well, what they do well with is having two therapists that are working with these, with an addict and a partner collaborate on a regular basis. Um, and that can sometimes create a little bit of a bridge until they're ready to do the, um, couples work if the relationship indicates that they
3: can do that. Our hour has flown by, and I would like to let our listeners know how to find *Intimate Treason* if they if they want to buy it. I think probably the most expedient
4: way is Amazon.com, and certainly Central Recovery Press.org, uh, um, the publisher themselves, um, your Barnes and Noble bookstores.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, it's
4: readily accessible, and it's also available in eBooks today.
3: Mm-hmm. Thank you both so much for being our guests today. Um, it's We could probably go on for another hour, but thank you so much.
5: Thank you. Thank you, Mary. We appreciate it. And thank you, Kara. Thank you. Thank you, Claudia. Take care. Bye. Bye. Have a good week, everyone. Thanks, Mary. You too.